Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we cannot begin to comprehend the depths of your love. A love so great that you could send your beloved son to die on a cross for sinners in rebellion against you. Lord Jesus, you were obedient to the Father's will even unto death. You bore our condemnation and through your atoning sacrifice we can know our sins forgiven and have our hope of eternal life. Father, may your love rule in our hearts that we might honour you in all that we say and do and that our lives would be a constant witness to your mercy and grace. Father, as James brings your message to us, give us ears to hear, soft hearts to receive your word, that we might be worthy of your great gift to us. So John 19 from verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place named the, known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Uh, We are, as we uh, said earlier through Scott, continuing on with our series in the Gospel of John. And we're looking uh, at this idea of law, power, and faith and how it's sort of playing out in this passage. And as I was reading this passage this week, and I was really wrestling with what it means for us as 
Christians. If you're here visiting with us uh, and you're not currently following Jesus, that's not how you sort of see yourself, there is quite a powerful message in this for you, and we're going to get to that a little bit later on. Uh, but for most of us here who are following Jesus, you know, trying to figure out what to do with this passage is an interesting one, because on the surface it doesn't look like it's for us. But the more I thought about the way that the, the Jews in this passage are responding to Jesus, I started to think about the way they were perceiving the law and their expectations about what God would and wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't do. And expectations, when it comes to God and how he works, is really, really important. And we know this just from real life. Like expectations so often shape our experience of something, don't they? Right? Uh, so, for example, uh, my beautiful wife here, uh, she had an expectation as she was growing up that she was going to marry you know, a boy who was Chinese and could sing and play guitar. One out of four ain't bad, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're not, not quite, but she managed to recover from that, you know, found a way to love me despite my compute musical illiteracy. Uh, and that's one thing. But then there are expectations in a relationship where if you're not careful, they can sort of harden into these rules and laws that start to, to shape it. So if you have an expectation from a friend based on where you've come from and maybe your culture and your background, but they're coming from a different place and don't see it the same way that you do, instead of really sort of seeking understanding and trying to understand where this other person is coming from, you can just start to get more and more mad that your expectations aren't being met. And you can start to perceive what they're doing in terms of they don't care about me, they're so inconsiderate, they're so selfish, which is not necessarily what's going on, it's just that they have a different set of expectations or understanding about how things work compared to what you do. And as we work through this passage, we're going to see that these Jewish guys, when it came to God's law and what God would do, they had a very clear set of expectations as to how they thought that this thing would play out. And they judged Jesus according to that. And because of that judgment, they were unwilling to see the possibility that God might have been doing something different and that Jesus was not actually moving in a spirit against God, but actually is the one in whom the spirit of God dwells. So let's, let's jump into this passage. Let's work our way through it. There's a whole bunch of different ideas here, uh, but we'll, we'll get to that and pull it out as we go. I thought it might be helpful as well just to give us a bit of a sense of geography. We, we've jumped into John's Gospel. Uh, we spent a whole bunch of time there uh, at the end of last year. We've jumped back into it the last couple of weeks, but there's some geography going on here. So we're in the city of Jerusalem, okay? Uh, last year, we finished up uh, in the upper room with Jesus where he'd shared a meal with his disciples, his closest guys. And then they took a walk over the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where we jump back into the story this term. That's where Jesus was arrested. And after he was arrested there at Gethsemane, they took him back around to Caiaphas's house, the high priest's house here on the western wall in Jerusalem. And now Caiaphas has sent him over to what was called Herod's palace, but particularly a part of it called the Praetoria, which was where the Roman governor sat. And you remember that we spoke a little bit last week about the political situation in Jerusalem at this time, where even though it's mostly Jewish people in Jerusalem, you have this foreign rule with the Roman Empire, and they essentially had the political and military power. They would let the Jewish people do their thing, as long as it didn't clash with Rome's power or their taxes and that sort of stuff, right? And this is a great symbol of that because essentially the Roman governor has set up shop in King Herod's palace, 
Jewish building, but Rome is, is dwelling in it, and they're the one with authority. Uh, this is what it, it looked like uh, back in the day. This is sort of a, a model reconstruction or an artist's impression of what it looked like back in the description we had. And the action that we have been looking at is happening right on these front steps here. And so Pilate has just been uh, in with Jesus inside that building, talking to him about, are you really a king? And Jesus has explained to him how his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom comes from another place. And we talked a bit about what it meant for Jesus to claim to be a king in this spiritual sense, in the kingdom of God, and how that works in and that sort of thing. And as Pilate's been talking with him, while he has failed to see the truth of God in front of him, He's also realized that Jesus hasn't actually done anything wrong according to Roman law. And so we saw at the end of the passage last week, uh, with this in mind, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. And in fact, he even tries to get Jesus released. He says, it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. That's, That's a festival, a Jewish festival that was happening at the time. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Which is a little bit of a dig at these Jewish guys, because clearly they don't regard Jesus as as, uh, their king. And accordingly, they shout back, no, not him, don't release him to us, give us Barabbas, a guy that we discussed was uh, quite possibly a murderer, and interestingly, a rebel against Roman rule. And so, what is Pilate going to do now? The Jews are refusing to follow uh, in this custom, and like he's trying to find a way to release Jesus. Is there any way that I can sort of get him out Uh, according to this custom? No, we're not going to take him that way. Give us Barabbas. That's the one that we want. Pilate is in this sort of tense political situation. He he knows he's the ruler, but at the same time, he doesn't have a lot of troops. You know, better to try and negotiate this situation politically. And so instead of telling them, I'm just going to release Jesus, he says, all right, I've got a different idea. And it says that Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Uh, the, the Jews were asking for the death penalty. That's what they'd come to Pilate looking for. They wanted to see Jesus crucified, which, according to Jewish law, would have represented him as being a curse before God, that God had cursed him. That's why he hung upon that cross. Pilate doesn't want to go there, and so he thinks, maybe if I flog him, this will be a way for me to get out of this. And as part of this flogging, Jesus is horribly mocked. It says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. There's a really good chance here that the Roman soldiers weren't so much doing this in order to go after Jesus and the claim that he was making. It's probably more a shot of the Jewish people in general. And we talked you know, last week about how there's a sense and Pilate looks at this guy and he's like, this is the king of the Jews? This is the guy you're upset about? Like, there's nothing impressive or special about this guy. But this guy is the one claiming to be king of the Jews? And so the soldiers here, as they, they beat him, dressing him up, mocking him, there's a good chance that they're not so much going after Jesus as much as they're mocking the entire Jewish system and these foreigners that they are ruling over, you know, the, for, to the Roman mind where pagans and weird, right? But, you know, we shouldn't just brush past this. Jesus has just been declared to be innocent. Pilate said he can find no fault in him. But because the Jews refused to take him back, Pilate, for his own convenience and for his own means, is like, I'm I'm willing to beat up an innocent guy if that serves my purposes and maybe that I can bring it into this situation that way. 
And so once more, it says that Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. That, you know, now remember, Pilate at this point thinks that the issue is that he's claiming to be the king of the Jews. We had this little hint there in the way that the story unfolded last week that the claim that when Pilate had asked them, what has this man done wrong? At first they were kind of evasive, like, yeah, you know, he's probably a bad guy, otherwise we wouldn't have brought him. But then there's a hint there that they must have said something like, this guy's claiming to be the king of the, the Jews. And so now Pilate is thinking, I've had this guy flocked and mogged, and, 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 sorry, flogged and mocked, as opposed to flocked and mogged, that would be strange. I've had him flogged and mocked. I've brought him out to you. Here's the guy. Like, can we not be done with this? I find him to be innocent. I've brutally mocked him, had him beaten up. Here's the guy. Just come on. Are we done? But as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify. Crucify. This is the place that they have gotten to in the hardness of their hearts. For them, Jesus is not innocent. We're going to see the, the specific claim that they make against him in just a second, but it's really important for, them to, for us to understand that for them, it's not enough for Jesus to be flogged and mocked and beaten. They want to see him dead upon a cross. They want to see it made crystal clear that this man is cursed before God. Pilate, though, still almost incredulously says, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. It's the third time in this little dialogue that Pilate's declared that Jesus is innocent before Roman law. He's, he's acknowledging, okay, listen, if you guys want to do this to him, fine, go ahead. Now, the truth is, they had no right or power to crucify him. So when he says, you go and crucify him, he's like, if you really want it that bad... You go ahead and do it. There'll be consequences. So it's not a real offer in the sense of, like, no, you, you have the freedom to go and do this. He's not really giving them permission as much as I think he's saying here, yeah, you go and crucify him. And like, if that's how you want it real bad, if that's the way you want to go, you do it. All right? You're trying to pressure me into doing this. You guys do it and deal with the consequences if you want it that badly. And then we finally get, for the Jewish leaders, the real issue for them and why they're going after Jesus so hard. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And this is the first time in this dialogue that they've said this so openly and clearly because they've kind of been avoiding this issue most of the way through. They've been bringing him before Pilate, trying to maybe speak to Pilate on his terms to get Pilate to agree to crucify him according to Roman justice, but this is actually the real issue. So previously, when, he's, uh, when Pilate asked what charges have you brought, they said, eh, you know, if he wasn't a criminal, would we have done this? Pilate goes back inside and then after conversing with the Jews, says, are you the king of the Jews? It seems like they were working some sort of political angle or something like that to try and get Pilate to murder him. But actually, it's this claim from Jesus to be the Son of God that has upset them so much. And this fits with what we've seen through the gospel. 
at multiple occasions. Here are just two examples, right? So uh, way back in John chapter 5, the first time that they want to kill Jesus, it says, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Similarly, in John 10, when Jesus asked them, what good work are you stoning me for? They said, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, to speak ill of God, to speak offensively of God, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. If you're visiting here with us and you think uh, that Jesus is, you know, probably a pretty good guy and a decent teacher and all that sort of stuff, but this son of God stuff's a bit crazy, you need to understand that this was the claim that Jesus made about himself. That his enemies understood really clearly that in his teaching, he was claiming this special place of exclusivity, of relationship with God, where he was more than just a mere man, but equal with God himself. And it's this very thing that the religious leaders cannot abide and they cannot stand this claim of Jesus to be the Son of God. But interestingly, this claim, considering that this is the real heart of the Jewish case against Jesus, it's really interesting to see Pilate's response to this. So back in our story, it says, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. It's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, we haven't been told previously that he was already afraid. So maybe it sort of means something like uh, all, all of a sudden he was afraid, or maybe you know the fear was this difficult political tension that was in the air or something like that. Not totally sure, but it's still interesting because the reason for his fear appears to be now something about, wait, hold on, have I made a mistake about this guy Jesus? Is he more than he has seemed? So he goes back into Jesus and he says, where do you come from? Two possible explanations for why he's now concerned about this. Uh, One, Romans believed in lots of different gods, and so he actually might have been worried according to his own religious custom, like, could this be a god in human form according to the stories that we knew and all that sort of stuff? Maybe. I'm not totally sold on that. I think potentially what's more likely here is that claiming to be the son of God, that's a phrase that the Roman emperors would use to speak of themselves. And that maybe by claiming to be a son of God, this might have been some sort of claim to connection to Caesar, the big Roman ruler, and that maybe Pilate's suddenly thinking, hold on, have I just flogged and mocked somebody who's related to Caesar, my boss? I think that might be more likely what's going on here. But interestingly, despite the fact that multiple times through this gospel, where Jesus is from has come up, and Jesus has said, I'm I'm from the Father, I've come from God. Now, Jesus offers no answer to Pilate's question, which Pilate finds amazing. And so he says to him, do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you is what you read in the NIV, but there's actually an extra word there that it's a repetition that they've left out, but I think it's important, okay? So if we sort of translated it slightly more word for word, I have power either to free you or power to crucify you. And the reason why I think this is important is because when you keep that repetition in, it starts to sound really familiar to us if you go back and look at what Jesus said about himself earlier. 
So back in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That word authority is the same word that gets translated as power in Pilate's speech. And so if we put them together, Jesus said earlier, I have power to lay my life down and power to take it up again. And Pilate is saying, I have power either to free you or power to crucify you. Pilate's making this claim about the power that he has. Jesus has already made a bigger claim about not just the power to set somebody free and allow them to continue to live, but rather the ability to enter into death and then take it, take life back up out of it again. And so with that in mind, Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate, you're, you're, you're talking about power here, but I know where real power comes from. You're, you're talking about the political power that you have to set free, to crucify or to, to, to release, but I have power over death and life itself. That's where true power comes from. And then he enigmatically says, therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. A couple of possibilities here for who the one might be. Uh, could be Caiaphas. That's the guy that just handed him directly to Pilate. Uh, could be Judas, who was one of his disciples that handed him over to the Roman authorities. Could even be the devil. When we think about how this is all in accordance, you know, Satan entered into Judas to have him handed him over and all that sort of stuff. Here's the thing, though. Whichever one of these Jesus has in mind here, they're guilty of the greater sin because there's some sense in which Caiaphas, Judas, or the devil, each of them should have understood where real power comes from. There's a sense here in which Jesus knows that Pilate is not seeing this in the same way as these Jewish guys would have been seeing this issue and where power really comes from. And so, you know, you've committed a sin. What you're doing here is wrong, but the greater sin belongs with those who know and understand what they're doing. And it's fascinating because at this point, Pilate's just like, this isn't, like, whatever's going on here, this man doesn't deserve to die. And so it says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. They're just relentless in their pursuit of seeking to have Jesus killed by a Roman authority. They've confessed that the real reason they want him dead is for his crime of blasphemy. But that hasn't worked. Pilate's now spoken to him. Uh, you know, who are you? Where do you come from? Don't you know I have the power to release you? Jesus is silent in his presence, calm in the midst of this incredibly tense situation. And Pilate is, uh, this, this man does not deserve to die. And so the Jews go back to, he is claiming to be a king. And if you really are Caesar's friend, if you're really right with Caesar, okay, you're going to recognize that this guy okay, opposes him and is therefore an enemy of the state and therefore you have to deal with this. And so now Pilate's in a bind. 
Because if the Jewish guys write to Caesar, if they write to his bosses and say, hey, your guy here who's meant to be putting down uh, rebellion and that sort of stuff, he refuses to kill this guy who claims to be a king. And so it says, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement. That's not the actual thing. It probably looks something like that. Uh, we don't know the, the exact site, but just to give you an idea of what it looked like. He sat down on the judgment seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which, is, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. And so Pilate, with his hand forced, comes before the Jews and says, here is your king. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And then these Jewish guys who have been suffering under Roman oppression, who hate the fact that Jerusalem is being ruled by these foreign imperial soldiers and troops and that sort of stuff, these guys that are 100% committed to God ruling in Jerusalem and in Judea and a return to the Jewish kingship and all this sort of stuff, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. It's just, it's, it's mind-blowing stuff. Everything seems topsy-turvy. The, the, the Roman governor is trying to see Jesus set free. The, the, the Jewish guys that should know better are pursuing you know, Jesus' death with, with vigor. They're, they're willing to uh, now pledge loyalty to Caesar in, in order to see this whole done. It, it's just everything seems to be turned upside down while Jesus... It sits calmly at the center, progressing towards the death and resurrection that we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks as we head into Easter and beyond. So what do we, what do we take from this? Well, I mentioned before that if you're here visiting with us, I think that there is a really, really clear message for you if you're not yet following Jesus. And it's got to do with this whole power aspect here, right? So Pilate is the most powerful guy in the city of Jerusalem. There's no doubt about that. He's got the backing of the Roman Empire. He's got all the legal authority. He's got troops at his command. He is the force for power. And to all outside appearances, when he says here, I have the power either to free you or power to crucify you, we'd read that and we'd simply say, yes, the power of life or death sits in Caesar's hands. And yet that claim immediately is proven to be false because what does it say next? Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He claimed to have the power to free Jesus or to release, sorry, to, to release him or to crucify him, but his own claim to power is immediately shown to be empty and false, not just before the power of Christ, but even in his own context this one guy, the most powerful man in the city, still has to wrestle with these other earthly powers and consequences and what it means for him. On the surface, it looks like the powers of this world have all this power to give life or to destroy, but in reality, it's limited. The one who has real power is Jesus. 
The one who has the real power over life and death is Christ. And such is his power that he can even allow himself to be crucified, as we'll look over the next couple of weeks, but then take up his life again. And so if you're here visiting with us, it's really natural and normal for us to see powers in this world and think that that's what it's all about. That if we can simply get to a point where we have enough wealth, enough status, enough political power, enough influence, enough people at our command, that, that we will be the, the ruler, that, that we will have control of life, that we will be in charge of all these things. But it's not that hard to take you know, Pilate as an example of this and just work our way through history and see how many great people with power and influence, troops at their command, status, still meet their match in death. That whatever claims to power that they had are proven false in the face of the grave, but Jesus is the one great figure who conquers that enemy of death. And that's why he's able to offer eternal life to us. Again, from earlier in the gospel, the whole reason that Jesus came into this world was because God so loved the world and gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Not because we have power over life and death, not because our faith has power over life and death, but because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, wins victory over death. And when we believe in him, we're joined to him. And now we may have eternal life. That's real power. And the greatest reward, that very thing that we're seeking, life to the full, is found when we actually admit our powerlessness and trust in Christ and his power instead of our own. So if you're visiting here with us and you want to talk about that more, please come and, and have a chat with us about that. Chat with either the people who brought you. Talk to me. You can come to the next steps desk and we'll find somebody to take that stuff further because this is the whole point of John's gospel, to help you to see the reality of who Christ is and the gift that he offers to us. But for those of us that are already believing, I thought really hard about this. And this, this might seem like a, a surprising one for us to take away, but I, but I want you to just trust me a little bit and go with me here on this one, okay? I want us to try and see the Jewish leaders here as complete human beings, not just the villain in the story. Because they, they very definitely are the villain, right? Literally, they're here shouting, crucify, crucify. And for all of us who are believing here, I don't think that, that we're at risk of getting to that point of you know, rejecting Jesus and that sort of thing. I believe that you know, Jesus promises us that all those who believe in him, he will bring forth to salvation. But what I do worry about sometimes is that we can create, by our expectations of God, a lore in our own mind about how we think God should behave and act. See, because this, this is the thing, right? Th these guys are, are furious with him because they believe that he claimed to be the Son of God. And this is the thing. If Jesus wasn't the Son of God, they are absolutely right. He has committed blasphemy against God. But this is a really important thing. Despite the fact that Jesus has given them good reason for thinking that maybe there was something special about him, they had these preconceived ideas about what the Messiah would be, about what God could do how he would operate, how he would act, that hardened their heart towards the reality that was actually sitting before them. So when we go back again to John 5, right? 
For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That would be a very, very difficult claim to believe, except for the fact that it's been joined to the fact that he just healed a paralytic guy in the verses beforehand. So it's one thing if you were to you know, go down to the shopping center and there was some dude proclaiming, you know, I'm the return of the Lord, I am the divine power, uh, you know, holding up a placard saying, follow me, right? That's one thing. But if that guy literally has somebody who's been a, you know, paraplegic their entire life before them, and they touch him and they say, get up and walk, and he does, well, all of a sudden, I've got to take the guy with the sign a little more seriously than I might feel comfortable doing. Similarly, in, 10, in John 10, when Jesus says, what good work are you stoning me for? They say, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you and me, a man, claim to be God. What had he done right before that? He'd healed a blind guy who'd been, you know, just never been done before in all the scripture, fulfilling the prophecies that he gives sight to the blind. And this thing, these Jewish guys had this expectation. They, they knew God's law and they thought that they would understood how God would act in certain circumstances and how he would behave. And the thing is, is that I think that we can do the same thing sometimes in our relationship with God. We can think that we know how God acts or how God behaves, and so we simply we, we seek to set rules around how that looks. And if those rules get crossed, if God seems to break the rules that we have set, it becomes really difficult for us to process. And sometimes we have to examine our own hearts to actually think about what the rules are that I've set for this. Because it's really easy to add to the promises that the gospel makes. We saw before that the promise of the gospel is that whoever believes in Jesus receives eternal life. But sometimes when we know God, and we know that he's good, and we know that he's loving, we can add these extra bits in, like, you know, I, I love God with all my heart, and I know God, he'd never take a child away from me. I know God, I know, I know that my children will be saved, there's no way that he'd ever let them walk away from me. I, I, I know God, I know that he's going to give me a good life, and, and we're going to have a good career, and we're going to have a good house, and we're going to live in the right place. You know, surely he's not going to have me live somewhere that I never intended to, in a job that I hate, and surrounded by people that are against me. And again, if we're believing in Jesus, I don't believe that these things are going to destroy our faith. Like, that's the difference, right? Like, the, the Jewish guys here, they get to a point, they literally want Jesus dead. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him is their call again and again and again. But I think that we can be at risk if God breaks those laws that we add, those expectations that we put upon God. While we might not give up on God completely, man, we can just start to keep him at a distance, can't we? Then, you know, no, I can't, I can't deny the reality of God, but I stop living for him in the fullness that I, I know I should be because he hasn't come through on these laws, these promises that I thought were part of the deal when they never really were. And that's hard because it requires us to humble ourselves before God on an entirely different level. And isn't that the problem with these Jewish leaders? They've gotten proud and hard of heart and arrogant 
to the point where even though God has shown the miracles and done incredible things and literally will raise himself from the dead, but because of their judgment that he's broken the laws that they, and their expectation for how he would live, they, they reject him. I call for his death again and again. So I think there's an examination that we need to take place to make sure that we aren't operating with the, these false rules and these false laws and to recognize that, that we have to always be willing to be open to what God is actually revealing and doing before us and be willing to be humble before that, recognizing who has the real power in this world and trusting in his goodness, not because he's done what we thought he would, but because he's done what he said he would and to trust him in the midst of that. Because we're going to Jesus' death next week, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday. And it's in that that we see the goodness of God most clearly revealed to us. So let's, let's go into this Easter season with humble hearts, ready to hear again the good news of the gospel and to hold on to what he does promise us, but not add to it anything else that might set up a false expectation that would take us away from him. All right, let's pray together now. Father God, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and all that he's done for us. Thank you that you've revealed your power to us through him. Thank you, Father, that your goodness is on display through all that Christ has done for us. May we please, Father, be humble before you, willing to listen to what you're saying, willing to listen well to your promises, and not add our own laws and expectations to what you might do. And we pray, Father, that as we do this well, that we would remain humble before you, trusting in you in all things, even when things don't go according to our plan. Father, I pray for those people here who, who've had their expectations and their plans disappointed, who have dealt with the hardest of hard things in this. I thank you, Father, for those who have come through trusting in you still. I thank you, Father, for those who have faced the most heartbreaking of situations and to face questions about who you are and what you've really promised us and come through trusting in you still. May we all have faith like that. And we pray, Father, for, for those who don't yet know you who might be here. We pray, Lord, that this story of Jesus displaying his power in the face of the, climb, in the, in the claims of Pilate and all that he was, may the claims of Jesus' divinity cut through all this and stir faith in us and the desire to know you more truly through him. And we thank you for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.